You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Solejo. I'm Justin Phillips. On this show, we talk about food and what it all means by speaking with people in the Bay Area and beyond who are writing and thinking about how what we eat shapes us and connects us. So on this episode, we speak with master fermenter, that's a thing, <laughs> Kelly McVicker about pickles. So you're kind of doing this like future investment cooking in a way, right? Like you're you're doing something for yourself in the moment, but you kind of have to, you know, handle the delayed gratification of actually being able to eat it. We'll also give you advice on your burning questions about food and just about everything else. What do you bring when you go to someone else's house for dinner? Now, this is the question that harkens back to a more innocent time. <laughs> more innocent times than you could see people. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this thing. Do you think it's weird that we're doing a show about pickles? Nah, nothing throws me for a loop anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this, this seems about right. It seems about right. I think what you'll like what you'll learn through this and this isn't i'm pretending i'm holding like a joint right now maybe yeah but like what you're gonna learn is that pickles are more than just pickles they're more than just cucumbers and vinegar yeah it's more it's deeper than that man but it is it is you're right i think that's what what's really great about kelly mcvicker is that she's gonna go straight for the jugular and say like pickles are time capsules and then you're just like, what? And then she like, yeah. we'll talk about it. I mean, that's a mind blowing intro to hearing about pickles. Right. You know? So hang on to your butts and get ready to hear an earful about why pickles are the greatest thing of all time from master fermenter, Kelly McVicker. What I find really interesting about your work actually is how easily you can talk about the philosophy of the pickle, if that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, I find it so interesting to think about, like your 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 idea of pickles as time travel. I find yeah. so compelling, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about like how those two things are related. How a jar of pickles can be a time capsule. Absolutely, yeah. I love. I mean, I think that that's always kind of what I come back to um, when I think about food. For me, it's. For one, it's very nostalgic. I think, you know, for all of us, really, in some way, we have a lot of memory tied to food. Um, I grew up in the Midwest in Kansas and had family on both sides that were farmers, you know, going back for generations of um, cattle and wheat farmers in mostly Kansas and Oklahoma. And so, you know, when I think of pickles, I think of a jar of something in grandma's cellar that you know, is there for flavor, but also there out of necessity. So that's the kind of first link that I make to the past is it's, you know, it's not something that you're doing as a cute hobby or a trend. It's, it's a practical device. That's like, you know, probably the, the preservation length is as important as the flavor for, you know, in, in, the, in that context. Right before this interview, I pulled up this Ted talk that she does mm. where she says like pickles are a time capsule. Um, and I think that's so interesting, especially now, right? Like the talk was before shelter in place times, but especially now where we're in this moment where like time is frozen, right? Essentially, everyone has a lot of time for a lot of different things right now. Yeah. Um, the future is really obscure, but pickles and fermenting and like giving a gift to yourself in the future is an investment in something that we can't even like, we can barely see right now. Right. I mean, the idea that uh, at some point 
time, um, like the value of time now is kind of low because we all have a bunch of it. Like you're just going to sit around doing the same stuff. There's no tangible field to transition from like the morning to the afternoon. Speaking in reference to like shelter in place situations. But the idea of like pickling something means that you have dispensable time, disposable time, I guess. Yeah. And there's like a freedom to that that you don't really think about until you don't have it. Right. Um, And it is so much like a gift to yourself in the future, like making your bed, you know, for me, (laughs) it's so hard to justify doing it, but I do it. And then when I actually am ready to go to sleep hours later, I'm like, Ooh, it's nice. Thank you. (laughs) Fast. So future me is going to enjoy this. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm making umeshu at home and that involves putting, um, unripe apricots in a cooler full of vodka or soju or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whatever for a year oh wow and so i'm i'm thinking like where am i going to be in a year you know what am i going to be thinking um Mm -hmm. who am i going to be with and who am i going to be drinking this with well the one the one beautiful thing about pickling things um is that i feel like there's just this tie to like your childhood for some reason because you talking about setting something aside for a year from now reminds me of like when we were kids and you would Make those, uh, what are those things called? Like those little boxes that you would bury, time capsules. Right, right. That right. you make a time capsule. And when you're young, like being eight years old, making a time capsule that you'll open at 10 is no big deal because you're just like, that's fine. But <laughs> set, setting something aside, you know, when you're in your 30s, like dedicating a year to it is a significant thing, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I think what Kelly's saying too about how recipes have been passed down for like generations right. in my family and like being able to make those same flavors um, is one thing. And then maybe inheriting those same foods that someone who might have passed on made is yeah. like really special and really interesting. I love it. Actually, the act of making pickles themselves, you really do have to think about the time because you're making something in a moment. And unless you're doing like a really quick pickle, um, your goal isn't to make something that you're going to eat that meal or even that day or possibly even that month. So you're kind of doing this like future investment cooking in a way, right? Like you're, you're doing something for yourself in the moment, but you kind of have to, you know, handle the delayed gratification of actually being able to eat it. So, so that's one way that I love it. You know, the kind of concept of time that comes into it. Um, And also just with the process, there's no substitute for that time. You know, there are ways to make the process go a little bit quicker by using vinegar instead of fermentation or, you know, depending on the little quote that I like to give people is the thinner the slice, the quicker the pickle. So like the more, you know, the more thinly you're slicing your little cucumbers or whatever, the more quickly that brine is going to penetrate. But at the end of the day, you know, if I get an order for pickles and they want them that week and they're not prepared that week, there's no like hack, there's no workaround, you know, the the time really um, has to stay as part of the recipe or the process. And I think that makes it really resistant to, uh, well, one, it makes it a pain in my ass because, you know, (laughs) the scaling and the timing can be really challenging. Um, But yeah, it makes it resistant to just scaling up to beyond kind of a a small scale level, at least the way that I do it. Yeah. I mean, like there are many corporate pickles out in the world um do they do it a different way than you do it yeah so there i mean there's so many different ways to you know achieve that kind of sour tangy flavor um 
And the process that I use for most of my commercially sold pickles is actually vinegar pickling, which is the quicker of the processes. Um, but I always like to let them sit for at least two weeks. So, you know, that, that kind of shelf time is built into the process. Um, but a lot of places, you know, because they're using additives and like additional chemicals in addition to the vinegar and the salt and everything else they're adding, um, it kind of softens up the vegetable or whatever and allows it to go in much more quickly and kind of penetrate and soak it through. I think here's a good moment to talk about the pickles that we've known, the pickles that we've loved, the pickles that have brought light to our lives. Um, and actually, in my past, many of them have been the corporate pickle. The you know, corporate pickle, yeah. Like the nasty ass pickles that get sliced up and deep fried at yeah, dive bars. Yeah. You know, they've brought me so much joy. Um, the like commodity kind of cornichons that yeah. my family would eat with like white bread and Braunschweiger. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I always think of pickles that were, uh, maybe I think of like road tripping. And once again, it's a youth thing. It's thinking about like the past. But there was this brand that you could always find in Louisiana, um, usually like on these dust covered shelves in a convenience store that you would stop in that my dad would get like boudin or deer or some random thing out of. You know, it's like a direct tie to um, to like those memories, like being around family and just like those really wholesome experiences, I guess. It's one of those things to me, like the generic pickle, right? Is like this gross thing sometimes you get from like a cheap deli. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like withered mm -hmm. and like, you know, you, you want a nice like big juicy pickle where the slice is like straight as opposed to like a weird crescent moon because you know it's been cut like the day before. Um, I've eaten a lot of those <laughs> and hated them and would always kind of just like Eat, take a bite and regret it and then just like throw it out. <laughs> oh my God. You know what I do remember though? I remember um, like high school events, like if it was like a basketball game or something, they used to always sell those giant pickles or even like some gas stations. Would have oh those, yeah. Like, huge tubs of pickles. With like the big tongs. With the huge tongs. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen those. And they gave you like a little sleeve to put it in or whatever. <laughs> Man, Do you ever see those like individually wrapped pickles at like the oh, gas yeah. station? Yep, yep, yep. Just yep. like that. <laughs> Just like that. It is a really nice slice of Americana. Yeah. Makes you think of nostalgia. And um I don't know, pickles aren't really a very cynical food. It's hard to be cynical about pickles. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh we could find a way though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Do you think that this this impulse to to come away from our very American style of going to the grocery store for every little thing? For many of us who don't live in food deserts, um, we rely on the grocery store for so much. Do you think yeah. that this might have a long term kind of impact on people? Like, are people going to commit to pickling and fermenting and processing everything on their own? Yeah. I mean, I would like to think so. I don't. I don't really see people like going, you know, yeah, completely to homesteader style, like doing everything themselves. But I do think that, you know, we have to think about like kind of a middle way or maybe even like that you kind of have a, like a, a, another mode that you can toggle into and be like, okay, this is the time where I do more fermenting. And this is the time where I'm going to make sure I like get a bunch of, I don't know, strawberries and make jam for the season or, you know, something like that. So, I, I mean, I would love to think that we're all just going to kind of revolutionize the way that we um, interact with our food. Uh, but I hope, I hope that people are going to see that there is, 
you know, kind of these steps in between going completely like off the grid homesteader doomsday prepper style, which has <laughs> never been my approach to begin with. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if everyone's going to have a full on like Latter-day Saints style, like bunker, <laughs> right? Like stacked right. with cans and jars and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Because then that's like, I mean, you're kind of hoarding in another way, right? Like I want people to feel that they have access to these methods, but also like, you know, the point is to consume it and to kind of engage with it regularly and not just do it in sort of a panic mode. So I want to, I want people to feel that they can, you know, make pickles and ferment as a way of preparation, but not out of like scarcity or fear, but as like, okay, this is something I can do to kind of feel a bit more like in control of my food access. So the thing that I find really interesting about this moment that we're in, you know, the coronavirus pandemic and like having to kind of hoard a little bit is like more people are thinking about access and scarcity, mm. you know, like very. Let's let's just be honest, like there's a certain segment of people, working class people, people who live in food deserts who know that they're not going to be able to get what they need. Right. You know, they take that for granted. Right. And there is another segment where, you know, you just hop down to Trader Joe's anytime you want to get like your, I don't know, hot chili cashews. And um, this has made that more kind of equitable, not equitable, but like equal opportunity to run out of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone can run out of stuff the same way. I remember being in East Oakland, writing a story about like these East Oakland grocery stores, uh, which the population out there is like, you know, largely people of color low income and it's one of those places where everybody kind of leans on everybody else during dire times like you know uh economy crashes there might be more cookouts in neighborhoods where people can get together so these grocery stores uh so i remember you know being in other parts of san francisco um you know other parts of oakland wealthier places and going to stores there and people are like literally going to war over containers of like tissue rice whatever but in East Oakland, where nobody really has much of anything, everybody's kind of the same. These grocery stores aren't like glamorous places. It was so peaceful, like peaceful. No one was like pushing, shoving. It was, you know, everybody wanted the situation to be great for everyone else. I don't know. But I, I get what you're saying about like the the kind of lens this puts on access, I guess. Yeah, I think one of the long term hopes that I have for this actually um, is that more and more people start to divorce themselves from industrialized food, mm -hmm. right? And this is, you know, this is in line with like Alice Waters and mm -hmm. her whole philosophy, mm -hmm. right? Um, taking control of where you get your food because you don't want to depend so much, right, on that. Um, making your own pickles, right? Making your own bread, growing your own vegetables. I think people who have lived through scarcity already know how to do these things, right? Yeah. They have survival kind of in their bones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the rest of the population that needs to learn these skills. Um, and it's not necessarily like, like an apocalyptic thing. It, right. The apocalypse is already right for so many other people. Right, right. So, I mean, the, the basic hope is that people that have time and are in a place where they can put that time towards something, hopefully they learn during this pandemic. You know, maybe pickling will be something that they'll get into. You know, maybe growing their own food will be something that they'll get into. I mean, it all comes back to time, man. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Salejo, and I'm back with Kelly McVicker of McVicker Pickles. So it sounds like pickling is 
as much about community as it is about the product, right? I, I think that there's definitely um, a big community aspect in pickling and, and preserving in general, partially because it works a lot better if you're doing, especially if you're trying to do several jars at once. Uh, it's way better to have a few people, right? It's it's much easier to do the process if you have somebody, for example, chopping the cucumbers, somebody filling the jars, whatever. So the process itself definitely lends itself to community. Um, and then I think too, because it's nostalgic, it's, it kind of spans age groups. Like in one of my average classes, I might have, I would say most people are like in their twenties to late thirties, you know, kind of young urbanites, let's say, but I get a ton of people in my classes that um, one ask, Hey, can I bring my seven-year-old? They love pickles and they would love to learn or my mom as like a, you know, multi-generational family event. So it's something that, um, you know, it, it spans age categories completely and expands because of the fact that every culture on the planet has some type of pickling tradition in their food. It, that just brings in all types of, of pickling kind of techniques and, specifically like what people are interested in learning. I have sometimes people coming and they say like, my grandma made this one type of um, pickle with tarragon and I want to be able to recreate it. So we can kind of try to help, you know, uh, sort of almost like redo the recipe backwards to find what is nostalgic for them. Yeah, it's a big community kind of binder. So I really like the idea of a pickle community because I like the idea of pickle drama. <laughs> pickle beef. No, pickled drama. <laughs> Not pickled beef. Not pickled beef. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Language matters. <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea of like, okay, person A, you know, and person B, like having it out over, you know, vinegars, like vinegar brands or like pickling techniques, you know, um, like you're, you're a heretic if you do it this way yeah. versus that way. Like on a message board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to see, I want to be a fly on the wall of those conversations because it's so, every, every community has its drama. It has drama. And from the outside, it's always so unintelligible. Yeah. That's what makes it interesting. I mean, I, I wonder if it's one of those things where, you know, somebody posts, posts on a message board where they're, I just got done with these, you know, pickling these pickles. Like, what do you guys think? <laughs> what, do you guys, what do you guys think of this photo? And then someone in the comments is like, oh, it's Photoshop. Photoshop, I've seen this. This is on the board six months ago. Fake pickles. Fake pickles. This guy's, a, this, this dude always does this. It becomes a whole thing. I mean, I'm here for the pickle drama. Also, just the idea that, um, I mean, this might be a bad assumption to make, but a pickle community, I imagine that the individuals within that community have are patient people. Pickles aren't a process you can rush, right? So does that apply to beef? You like, think they keep receipts? I bet they do. Oh, they definitely keep receipts. And they just wait. Oh, yeah. They'll be like, oh, I don't know when. It could be 10 years now. <laughs> I'll, get you, I'll get you back for this. <laughs> yeah, you know, especially now... Like I've heard of some really interesting race conversations happening in the equestrian community. Oh, interesting. For instance. Yeah. And I bet pickle people are having their own conversations. Like, you think? Right? Like what yeah, is the intersection with like Black Lives Matter and the pickle community? Yeah. It has to be some kind of dialogue. I wonder. Because you know how people make like really beautiful pickle like jars that have art yeah. and stuff. I wonder if people are making like 
Oh, African diaspora pickles. Oh, interesting. That would be interesting. You know, we're sitting here talking about it. We might have to like, when the, all this is said is, and done, just dive onto the pickle message boards. What if it's like way more tame than what we think it is? And we're just... It usually is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, if you have pickle drama, please email us extra spicy at sfchronicle.com. We want to hear from you. We want to hear about this pickle drama, not beef. We want the pickle tea. We want the pickle tea. Ugh. <laughs> so you're clearly an evangelist for this craft. Uh, you know, you've done so many speaking engagements. You're talking to me. You're doing uh, so many classes and things like that. Um, I guess what would you tell people who have like a maybe a skeptical kind of outlook towards this and who are intimidated or just like don't know how to start? Well, first of all, I would remind people that this is a super low tech approach to to preserving food. I mean, we might have things that make it easier right now. Um, you know, we might have like canning uh, kettles that make it easier to preserve lots of jars at once, or we have pH meters to test, you know, the pH if you're fermenting something. But really, these are the techniques that humans kind of developed over thousands of years as we co-evolved in the case of fermentation, as we co-evolved with the very bacteria that we're hoping to, you know, continue to allow to flourish inside of these jars. Um, so for one thing, you know, it's super old. You don't need to be intimidated. You don't need to wait for an expert, myself included, to tell you how to do it. Um, I think that in many ways, we've kind of been taught not to trust our senses when it comes to food. And we pay a lot more attention to what the experts say and, you know, expiration dates and all of that when really our five senses are really um, well equipped to help us, you know, not eat anything that's going to make us sick. <laughs> um, that's not to say that, you know, food poisoning isn't an issue in other areas, but with fermentation and really with vinegar pickling as well, what you're doing is you're acidifying the environment so much that it makes it really difficult for most of the foodborne pathogens to survive. So if you're doing it well, and if you're, you know, following the basic steps that are really easy to follow, uh, it's a really, really safe process. And also, you know, it is a learning curve. It took me a lot of time developing recipes and, and just getting my kind of muscles going, especially with fermentation, to find out what the proper salt ratio was for me in my environment. Um, because it's responsive to everything. It's responsive to temperature and the length of time and even the light. Um, so, you know, my point being like, you're going to have to do a little trial and error anyway. So just be comfortable with, you know, you might have a few jars that fail, um, but don't be discouraged by that because in the long run, it's more about like figuring out the techniques and making them work for you so that you don't even really at a point have to use recipes because you understand what the salt is doing, you know, what the time is doing, what the vinegar is doing, um, what the heat is doing in the case of canning and all of that. So I, I, I like to help people see that, you know, it's, it's not something that you need to wait um, for expertise. It's, it's a really old craft and a really simple craft. And, um, there are lots of resources out there to help you get started. That is really comforting to hear. <laughs> so uh, before you go, would you mind just telling yeah. our listeners where they can find you and your work? Sure. So uh, my website is just uh, McVickerPickles, McVickerPickles.com or on Instagram at McVickerPickles. 
Um, right now, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm selling my pickle in place kit. So those are available on my site as well as the book that I wrote, Essential Vegetable Fermentation. And uh, products are at Byright and a bunch of other good stores in the Bay Area. So um, yeah, you can check out all, all of the list of all the stores is on the website. So in every episode, we will alternate between two segments. The first is What Is This Nonsense, where we talk about weird stuff in the food world. And the other, which we will be doing today, is Dear Spicy, where we answer your questions, maybe your voicemails, about all kinds of weird stuff that our producer gives us. Your angry letters written in the... In written words cut out from other magazines and glued to a piece of paper. <laughs> like, I mean, if you are the Zodiac killer, <laughs> do not write us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not trying to deal with that in 2020. So please send written questions or voice memos our way at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. First up, what do you bring when you go to someone else's house for dinner? Now, this is the question that harkens back to a more innocent time. <laughs> more innocent times so you can see people. <laughs> <laughs> Although, who knows? By the time you listen to this, perhaps that will be a reality again. That is true. Um, for me, I used to bring banana pudding. Really? Yeah. It was really easy to whip together. Oh, wow. You know, you make your own cream. You make the pudding. You get some Nilla wafers. Um, and it can sit out at room temperature. It's fine. That's all. I, I love that. That's very cool. I wouldn't think to bring that. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you bring? So there's this, um, there's this episode on Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, where the main character, Larry David, gave this whole speech about how he doesn't bring wine to dinner parties because everyone brings wine. So he brings bread. And I was like, you know what? That might say more about a person, the type of bread that you bring, than a bottle of wine. Those right? two options are very biblical. They are. Yeah, bread and wine. You're absolutely right. That's like blood of Jesus. Yeah. Body of Jesus. I mean, if you're making your own bread and making your own wine, too, that'd be intense. Weird. So what kind of bread would you bring? Honestly, I, I, I don't know. It would depend on the people. If I, I imagine I would be more adventurous if I was friends with them. Right. Because then um, if they were if they objected to it or just like, why'd you bring this crap? Then it's fine. (laughs) But I feel like if it's people I don't know that, you know, it's like the French bread route, kind of like something very, very simple that, you know, is not going to like ruffle any feathers. But um, or maybe I should like reverse that. Maybe it should be a thing where you bring the adventurous bread to people you don't know. So you have Mm. something to talk about. And then you bring the normal bread or like the the less like the least likely to ruffle feathers bread to your friends. I don't know. You know what is really screwed up? What's that? So I when I first moved here, I went to a dinner party. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a potluck at um, at someone's place and there was no guidance. That's mm. the first clue. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like they were just like, show up, bring something. Yeah. And everyone Every single person brought bread. Really? No one brought a single thing to put on the bread. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it was literally just a bread buffet. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't sound too bad. No? I'd, I'd be into it. I brought like this really, you know, hard, hearty bread from um, Tartine. Of course. And 
there was no knives. Yeah. And people were just like ripping, like they were like punching this, <laughs> at this bread. <laughs> like little monsters. <laughs> uh, okay. Next question. Um, another one that harkens back to previous times. To better times. What is your favorite memory of eating in a restaurant? I was probably, I think I had just turned 21. Might have been my 21st birthday, as a matter of fact. But uh, I was in Houston at this restaurant that I don't think is open anymore. It was called Just Dinner, but it was out of this family's house. Oh, my so, God. So, like, the dad was the cook and kind of, like, the would patrol the room and have conversations with people. His daughters were ones working in the kitchen. The tape, like, the small tables were, like, in the living room and stuff. So it was just a little house. You had to make reservations. And uh, it was like BYOB. So you'd bring your own um, your own wine. They would open it at the table for you. And like this was like my first kind of like expensive dinner because it was like expensive at the time for me. And I think they knew that. So I was like probably 20 years younger than any person that was there. But they spent more time at the table with us than they did anywhere else because they were like okay clearly you guys don't know like what the hell you're doing so so and like we brought like uh, everyone else was bringing like these really nice bottles of wine we had like barefoot that they, <laughs> that they opened <laughs> so they legit knew like okay 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 and so uh i remember the dad came over like opened the bottle of wine we drank the whole bottle like oh the table God. with him and his daughters and then he brought out another one from their kitchen and we drank that. And then we had dinner. He brought out like a little, uh, they made like a little cupcake for me for my birthday. And then at the end of it, he was like, so, you know, where are you guys going next? And I was like, well, we got to drive back to, you know, blah, blah, blah. He was like, oh, my God. And then he started making coffee. And he made <laughs> us stay for like an hour drinking coffee with him. It was the uh, it was the most fun dinner I'd, I had ever had in my new adulthood then. That's like unbelievable service. Yeah. That's great. I mean, and the the restaurant was like super small. Like there weren't, there was only like a handful of people in there. Um, Anyway, uh, what about you? What's your your favorite memory? For me, this is, this is really silly. Um, When I was a kid in Rockford, Illinois, Mm -hmm. my family for special occasions would go to hometown buffet. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the HTB. <laughs> the HTB. And um, we would, all the all those kids, my cousins and I would like wait while our parents would kind of like go up to the podium and like tell uh, tell them like how old the kids were because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they scale the price to the age of the kids. <laughs> and then they would come back to us and say, like whisper like, okay, you're yeah. eight years old. <laughs> You're seven and you're Ted. That's great. Oh, man, that's great. <laughs> and like, for what? For what? Like nasty ass, like rows of jello and ham and like weird, like powdered mashed potatoes. Got to work the system. It was so, <laughs> it's so funny. That's awesome. Like, but that was such a part of our growing up. Yeah. Was just learning immediately to like con people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Never pay full price. <laughs> It's extremely immigrant. Yeah. Oh, Just man. like, okay, sure. And oh, like, we never questioned it. Right. Yeah. Why would you? So here's our last question. And this is a, a very tragic one. My partner is a bad tipper at restaurants. 
How should I explain to him why this is not only unfair, but also unattractive? Oh, man, that's a deep one. I would start with, be, with, with saying why. If it's below the acceptable amount that a tip should be, you should ask, why do you tip so little? Well, first of all, what is the acceptable amount? That's a, I, I feel like we've had this this conversation in the newsroom before. What uh, is the bear is is the minimum? Fi- do you consider it fifteen percent? Twenty. You consider the minimum twenty percent? Yes. Twenty percent because it's San Francisco, or twenty percent in general? Because in general, yeah. Um, I think tips shouldn't exist. Maybe that's controversial. I don't. I definitely, for damn sure, don't think so. I, or at least in my opinion. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it is an archaic. It can be a sexist, racist system. I, I just don't enjoy it. Right. Um, all right. So let's say, but but with all that said, uh, the baseline, let's say the baseline is 20%, like you said. I would ask why. Like, why do you tip below that? And then, um, and kind of base the answer on there. Like, what could the answer be? I mean, they probably get paid enough for the restaurant. Or they didn't smile at me. Right. Or, um, yeah, like... Why should I have to when I'm already paying for my meal? Right. Right. We've all seen Reservoir Dogs. We've yeah. heard the we've yeah, heard yeah. the arguments. You know, I feel like if if it's your partner, ask them why. I feel like the responses will lead you to whatever your argument may be. But if they're like, you know, oh, they didn't smile at me enough, you can be like, what the, what the hell are you talking about? Like, is that something that concerns you? That impact your, you know? So I think I think just ask why. Some people, I think a lot of people just don't ask why. Right. I think in all relationships, seeing how people treat people who they think are below them and can give them nothing is really important. Really telling. I mean, yeah, that so that would be my that would be my response. Just like ask why. And that might reveal some way deeper flaws in that person than, you know, what you were expecting. What what do you think they should do? I think there's a lot of really good reading that they could have. Yes, indeed. Uh, certainly people like us have written yes, many things indeed. about this. Yeah. Um, you know, not to plug food yeah. media, but <laughs> I think there are a lot of really great um, guides to this. And, you know, you don't have to do all the talking or arguing yourself. Just send them stuff and see what happens. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you, Kelly McVicker, for being on the show. And to Erica Carlos for editing this episode. She is amazing. We'd love to know what you think about our show, so please send us your thoughts and let us know what topics you'd like us to cover by sending us an email at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. See you next time. Bye-bye. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like the Extra Spicy Podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Solejo, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.